So Hebrews 13, we're finishing this brilliant book. If you were here last week, we did chapter 12. Surprise, surprise. And if you noticed in chapter 12, it's very methodical. It's introduce a subject, work through its implications, just methodical. Chapter 13, it's as if the author was running out of room at the bottom of the scroll. He's like, oh my goodness, I've got so much I wanna say. You know when you're like a little kid, you like get to the bottom of your page and you still had more to do, so you start writing really little? It's like he did that. He's like, oh, I gotta cram all these things in, right? So chapter 12 was like a Volkswagen bus just putting along. Chapter 13 is like a Tesla. It just comes at you fast and incredible. So we've had 12 chapters of this. Jesus is better. So now chapter 13, here's what you do with that. Here's how you act on that. Here's how you respond. Maybe it's a little bit like this. Bunch of years ago, my daughter, uh, my oldest daughter went to Creation Fest up in, it's like a miserable spot in the middle of Washington, like the desert. But all these bands would converge there and it's like Christian music for three days straight. So she goes to this, she comes home and I was like, what'd you think? She goes, oh, it was so awesome. I said, well, what was your favorite brand? band. She goes, this band called Group One Crew. It's my favorite band. I said, why? And she said this, well, dad, they didn't look like Christians. I was like, well, okay. I said, um, why? Well, they were cool and stylish. I was like, ow, okay. <laughs> I said, why, why were they so stylish then? <laughs> and why were they so unchristian and they're, or so whatever, not Christian, they're stylish. She goes, that there was a boy and a girl, and they both wear, both were wearing pink ripped capris. I said, the guy was wearing pink ripped capris? She said, yeah. I said, he wasn't a Christian. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> that dude was not saved, all right? <laughs> kidding. I'm totally kidding. Chapter 13 is, this is what a Christian looks like. Right? And it doesn't matter what clothes you wear. Chapter 13 is, this is what a Christian looks like. So the first thing that the author gets as he's just trying to fit everything in at the bottom of the scroll is he just pounds down a Christian loves. Check this out. Verse one, chapter 13. So really what's happened is gospel, gospel, gospel. Out of that gospel should produce something in the life of the believer. Verse one, let Brotherly love, continue. Number one, what does a Christian look like? He loves the brothers continually. It's easy to love a brother for a moment, right? Continually is a whole nother ballgame. Christians love continually. Well, how? I'll give you one way. Be kind. Be kind. Do you know that kindness spreads? When you're kind to somebody, it actually changes the way that they respond to the next person that they come in contact with. It spreads. Well, how do I even be kind? I'll give you one way. Smile. Just smile. 2020 
was the year of the frown. Do you know that? Let's make 2021 the year of the smile. Just smile at people. I read this just fascinating study on panhandlers. And they set up these secret cameras and just watched panhandlers. And they found that if a panhandler smiled, he made way more money. If you sat there frowning with your sign, nothing. But if you just smiled, you look kind, man, you got a lot of money, right? And there's a few things in the world that are contagious. Apparently COVID-19 <laughs> and smiling, right? If you see somebody smiling, what is your response to them? You almost have to smile back. And do you know what happens the moment you smile? Your brain goes into happiness factory. It's been proven. Your brain, just the muscles of your mouth, even if you don't want to smile, you're forcing a smile, your brain immediately begins to produce happy hormones. If you have kids, you already know this, right? When a kid is all upset, what do you try to do to that kid? Get him to smile. Because the moment he smiles, guess what happens to him? His brain produces happiness stuff, and all of a sudden, they're not upset about their G.I. Joe action figure with the Kung Fu grip getting broken. It's not such a big deal anymore, right? That's the power of smiling. This other study that I found just absolutely fascinating about smiling was um, these people that were severely depressed, they had tried medication and meditation and therapy, nothing worked. One of them had been severely depressed for 17 years. This doctor took them and he tried this. He gave them Botox injections into the muscles that make you frown right? So you can't frown anymore. Botox actually paralyzes those muscles. And then it caused them to almost always be permanently just a little hint of a smile. They found this, 90% in two months had stopped being depressed. The other 10% had significant movement out of depression. Smile. Like, you want to love continually? Smile. I can't smile. Here's how you smile. You do the book of Hebrews. Remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of how good God has been to you. Remind yourself of Romans chapter four, verse five, that you are saved by faith and your faith has made you as righteous as Jesus. Remind yourself of John 15, where Jesus says, God has loved me, the Father has loved me, I've loved you. Now you're in this flow, go and love other people. Remind yourself of Jude 21 that says this, Keep yourself in God's love. Just remind yourself continually, my heavenly father loves me. Or do this, Luke 7. Jesus says, the one who is forgiven much loves much. Someday just take an hour and write down everything that you've been forgiven of. And what you'll find is, wow, I can love. What does a Christian look like? Number one, they love the brothers continually. Number two, verse two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Number two, they love the stranger through hospitality. We need to get back into, as a culture, the meals ministry. The meals ministry is this, just a simple thing. Hey, come over for dinner. How low bar is that, right? 
You're not, hey, explain the creation account and how to reconcile that with evolution. We're not talking about that. We're just, hey, come over to my house and eat a meal with me and let's chat. What's the last, when is the last time you have invited a stranger, especially someone that does not believe in Jesus, into your home for a meal? Has it been a year? Two years? 10 years? Meals ministry. Just invite them over. Guess what Jesus was doing all the time? Eating meals with strangers, right? And he would invite himself over to their house because he didn't have a house. He's like, hey, I'm coming over to your house for dinner tonight, right? I don't know if that will work for you because you're not Jesus, but try the other way. Hey, come to my house and have a meal with me, right? It's brilliant. It's so simple. And who knows, angel here could literally mean a messenger from God from heaven. But the word angel just means messenger. It could be in that event, you get a message from God. Maybe a question you had, maybe a thing you were wrestling around with. Maybe in that event, God uses that hospitality moment to speak to you in a really clear, incredible way. Number two, what does a Christian look like? They love the stranger through hospitality. Number three, verse three. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Number three, what does a Christian look like? They love the oppressed with empathy. It means this. You look at people mistreated, in prison, going through difficulty, and you say this, I feel your pain. That's simple. It's called empathy. Your brain, my brain, is actually hardwired to be empathetic for people. Do you know how I know that? Yawning. When you want yawn, what are you saying? Matt, finish the message quickly. <laughs> when you're yawning, you're saying this, I am tired, you should be tired too, let's go home and go to sleep, right? And it's contagious. The other thing that's contagious is yawning. So the moment somebody yawns, someone else in the room will normally yawn. If somebody does not yawn, guess what that means they are? A psychopath, right? So if you are on a first date with somebody, just yawn. And if they don't yawn back, leave. Like, you're a psychopath, I'm out of here. <laughs> this could save your life. Here's something I never knew. The University of London did this study on dogs they found dogs, when an owner yawns, the majority of dogs, they yawn. Dogs have empathy. If a dog can have empathy, my goodness, we can have empathy, right? We're supposed to be the most empathetic people in the world. Here's why. Because we believe in the gospel. There's none righteous, no, not one. That all have fallen short of the glory of God. One of my favorite Bible verses is 1 Timothy 1.15 where Paul, the apostle Paul, author of half of the New Testament, he says this, this is a worthy saying. You need to accept it, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Why was Paul full of empathy? Why do you have such a mission to go out of his way to help people and to constantly be giving his life to others? Because he knew the gospel. You saved me. 
You snatched me out. I can't help but have empathy and try to help other people that have been mistreated or put into prison. It's the mark of believers. They love the oppressed with empathy. And fourthly, verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Number four, love your spouse faithfully. What does a believer look like? They love their spouses faithfully. This is obvious. In the beginning, God created them male and female. And Adam marries Eve and he says, hey, for this cause shall a man leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. You're supposed to love your spouse faithfully. And we need to be careful because what can happen is this. We can start to love the brothers and try to help them and, and then have mission and try to love those that are mistreated and, and try to love and be hospital to other people. And then at the end of the day, there's nothing left for us. There's nothing left for your spouse. And that happens all the time. But the Bible says this, the highest love that we are called for is not for the church, it's not for ministry, it's not for the mistreated. The highest love that the Bible calls a human to is for their spouse. It's Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love, agape, your wife, like Christ loved the church. No other time is that same love called for. No other time does it say, love this like Christ loved the church. Or love, it's one thing, love your spouse like Christ loved the church. Like I think in the Bible, there's this simple kind of hierarchy. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, number one. Love your wife like Christ loved the church and love your kids. It's really the flow of the book of Ephesians. And when you get that right, when I am God first, wife second, kids third, and a lot of time what happens in a marriage is the wife and the kids, they flip-flop, don't they? Because your kids are so needy and they're so immediate and they're so there and they're so just, you, you just can't help it, right? And so a lot of times the marriage gets neglected and the kids turn 18 and all of a sudden there's nothing left. And how many of us know a couple that the kids turned 18 and all of a sudden they're separated? No, you gotta come back to what God says, love your wife, love your wife. And a lot of times, if we start to move away from that, the spouse begins to feel it. And then Satan is so good at bringing someone in. So good. And we now have this thing called Facebook. You know that Facebook is referenced in one third of all divorces now? It's this new thing, that is new tool that Satan has. All of a sudden, when there is a separation, when the, that void is there, oh, he's got his target. Be careful. Be careful, because then the marriage bed gets defiled. So love the brothers continually. Love the stranger with hospitality. Love the oppressed with empathy. Love your spouse faithfully and love life contentedly. Check this out, verse five. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, 
The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Do they love life? Do the leaders that you're around and the leaders that you like and wanna follow, are they just loving life? Because ultimately, that is where the rubber meets the road and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You love life, and I think here's the key to it. You do it contentedly. Look out for money. Find your contentedness. Paul would put it like this. It's Philippians chapter four, verse 11. He says, I have learned how to be content. I've learned when I had a lot to enjoy it. And I learned when I had nothing to be okay with it. But it's a learned process. It's not normal. Now, money is not bad. Do you know that? It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Love in itself, it's just what it is. But I know this. If I am not content right now with what God has given to me, I will not be content later. That if 1,000 square feet doesn't make me content, 5,000 square feet isn't either. It will for a little while, then I will adapt to it and my appetite will just grow and I want 10,000 square feet, right? That's the way we are. If I'm not content with my car right now, unless it's an absolute piece of junk that backfires and people try to pull guns on you and stuff like that, if I'm not content with my car now, then you, you can always get like, well, you know, it's a 2000 model. I went to 2010. And then you start driving the 2010 and your buddy gets a 2020. What do you think? Man, that 2020 is sweet, right? That's just the way it is. It's the appetite of our eyes. It just enlarges, 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 enlarges. You can learn to be content. And we gotta train our kids to be content because there is an appetite now. It's just unbelievable, right? I gotta have the iPhone 12. Why? Is it that much better than the iPhone 11? I don't know, it's the 12. That's all that matters. Like, come on, really? It's insanity, right? I have never met a college kid. I've talked to a lot of college kids. I've never met one that was mad at their dad because they bought them a Datsun primered car. Like, I haven't met them yet. Like, I'm so mad at my dad. He bought me a Datsun. Like, they don't even make Datsuns anymore. Never. But I've met plenty of college kids driving their dad's BMW who have all kinds of daddy issues. Because it's not about that. It's not about money. It's about being content. Well, how do we get content? Let me give you a couple things. Number one, and Christmas is coming. <laughs> Number one. You have to know that happiness does not come from more money. Do you really know that? Because I think deep down in our minds, all of us believe, if I just had another zero on my bank account, I'd be happy right now. But I have this book and you can buy it if you want to. It's Dennis Prager. It's called Happiness is a Serious Problem. It is brilliant. Short read, brilliant. And he cites this study, I've never forgot it. And it's a comparison between people that had been in an accident, become paralyzed and become a paraplegic, and people who had won the lottery. And they began to follow them for a period of time to figure out how happy they were. Well, obviously, there were some major dips for the paraplegics and a big spike for the lottery winners. 
But after one year, the lottery winners went down and they were equal. And then from that point on, lottery winners went down and paraplegics went up. Money will not make you happy. And the way that I can evaluate when, if I'm content is really how generous I am. And when I see a need, what happens in my heart? Do, do I close my wallet or do I open my heart when I see a need? God, are you calling me to this? Can I be the answer to this? Or I'm not helping there. Like my generosity to me is the measure of, am I content right now? And then finally, you have to just learn to live the gospel. So if you look through this, look at verse five, right? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, who's the he? Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do for me or to me. Verse eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Contentedness is ultimately a faith issue. That's what it is. It's an issue of faith. Do we believe that God is with us? Do we believe that Jesus is better than life? Do we believe Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory? Do we believe Psalm 37.25? I've been old and I've been young and I've never seen the righteous children begging for bread. Do we believe Ephesians 3.20, now unto him that's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think be the glory. Do we believe Romans 8.32? If God spared not his only son, but delivered him up on our behalf, how shall he not with him give us all good things? Do we believe that? Do we believe verse eight? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means this, he will never give up on you. He will never, ever give up on you. You can't wear Jesus out. It's not like, oh, okay, I'm done with you. There's no unadoption in the kingdom, right? There's no divorce in the kingdom. We are his bride. He does not divorce us. God's not capricious. He doesn't change his mind. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is committed to you. He's committed to me. Do you know the power that has? I've told people over and over, there are two transformational things that happened in my life. Number one was when I finally understood that God had me and he was never gonna give up on me. Because for many years of my life, it was I was on a treadmill trying to impress God. God, look how great I am. Look how much of the Bible I read. Look how much I prayed to you. And it was just, it wore me out. When this message finally sunk in, Matt, I adopted you. You are my son. You are always welcome in my home. That my approval of you is not based on your performance. It's based on what I've done for you. And my name has been stamped on you. That was revolutionary to me. Transformed my thinking. Gave me confidence. The second thing was when a beautiful five foot nine blonde said I do to me. All right? The first one anyone can have. The second one is mine. Mine. <laughs> right? Just absolute confidence. This is what a believer looks like. 
love. So let me read for you. This is from a letter for someone evaluating the Christian church and sending this letter to the emperor of Rome. Because the emperor was like, what's up with the Christians? This is what he writes. This is from 1800 years ago. Quote, Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They marry and have children, but do not kill unwanted babies. They share their table with all, but not their bed with all. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of all things. That's the enigma of the Christian life. And if you know Christian history, Christians by 350 AD, 50% of the Roman cities, the major Roman cities, 50% of the population of those cities were Christian. It's just unbelievable, unparalleled in history. Why? Because of the way they lived their lives. No one can argue with that. No one can argue with that. We were talking, uh, Mark and I were talking in staff and we we're talking about weddings and funerals. Like I love them both, um, but I like funerals more now. And the reason is, I think number one, at, at a funeral, people know what they're doing. In a wedding, yeah, you don't know what you're doing. A couple years you will, right now you don't. <laughs> but there's something amazing that happens in a funeral. Like there's, there's, a, there's a deeper bond that happens in that moment. It, it's, it, it, it's transcending, and you have people's attention in that moment, right? And I think about my own life. I'm, I've preached a lot of messages. What are people gonna remember? You know what people remember and they talk to me about? Hey, I remember you did that funeral for my aunt, or I remember you did that funeral for, it's, it's what I'm doing that matters so much. This is what Christians look like. This is what Christians look like. They love. Number two, they love truth. Look at verse nine. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. I love that little phrase. If I had time, we'd just talk about that. Not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. There are certain Christian circles. I just say, can you please read this? Because I'm gonna have some crab. We have an altar from <laughs> I'm serious. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What a brilliant, just brilliant little statement here. So this is whole book of Hebrews just like condensed right in here. And what the author is saying is this: Christians love truth. They love doctrine, right? So there's this whole thing, all, all you need is love, right? Great song. Is that true? I think you need truth too. There's a passage in the Bible that's all about love. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it says this about love. It says, love rejoices in the truth. Because truth really, really matters. Jesus told the truth even when it was hard, right? He told the truth even when it was hard. Read Matthew 16. When Peter, probably his, you know, John, probably his closest. Peter's number two, maybe vying for number one friend. And Peter's off. Bad theology. Trying to stop Jesus from going to the, cro the cross. What does Jesus do? Does he say, bro, come on, that's unloving. No, he rebukes him. Get thee behind me, Satan. For you are considering the things of man and not of God. 
That's truth. You're off your rocker right now, theologically. Truth matters. I sometimes get in trouble. I got in trouble for a couple of weeks ago. Got people mad at me. I said, well, is it true or not? Yeah, it's true, but, but I just didn't like it. Okay, right? We're all about feelings now. It, it made me, one person said, it made me feel uncomfortable. Sometimes God's word is supposed to make you uncomfortable, right? You know you're encountering God when you're uncomfortable. Read the Old Testament when people encountered God. They were uncomfortable. It's not a bad thing to be uncomfortable. And what this author is saying is, you've got two paths, and it's been the entire book of Hebrews. You can either take grace and be strengthened in your heart by grace, or you can keep getting goats and taking them to the temple and making your sacrifices and hoping that God approves you. You can keep doing your little things that you think will make God love you more, but they don't. Or you can have your heart strengthened by grace. You can take Jesus or food, veganism. Like somehow not eating certain foods make you more holy than someone that does eat food. Now, if you eat, if you're vegan for health reasons, awesome, great. But if you think not eating meat somehow makes you more holy, please read Romans chapter 14, right? If you think not eating certain kinds of food make you closer to God, I just tell people, no way. Drink a six pack of Red Bull every single day. You'll be close to God in no time, right? <laughs> food is not anything spiritual. Yes, health-wise. Yes, choose health-wise. But it has nothing to do with your spiritual access to heaven. You can either trust what's been done on the cross or you can keep choosing to try to do more and more and more and more to earn something that can only be given. That's the entire book of Hebrews. Doctrine matters. And he says this, I love verse 10. We have an altar. Where was an altar mentioned before in the book of Hebrews? Chapter four, verse 16. It's called the altar of grace. We have an altar called the altar of grace from which those who serve the tent, meaning the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, trying to earn something from God, have no right to eat. Here's what religion does to you. It starves you. Here's why. The answer in religion is always do more. If you have a problem, read more. If you have a problem, pray more. If you have a problem, sacrifice more. If you have a problem, that's the only answer religion has. And it starves you to death. Or you can come to the altar of grace and understand Jesus Christ paid your price gave you what he earned, took what you deserved simply because he loves you. Have your heart strengthened with that. That's good doctrine. I tell people all the time, Jesus is the deep end. When I look at this book, there's all kinds of cool stuff in here. Jesus is the deep end. Everything outside of Jesus is the kiddie pool. And if you're an adult, you should not be in the kiddie pool. I'm gonna call the cops on you because that's awkward and weird. <laughs> Get into the deep end and it's Jesus. Be strengthened by his grace. So Christians look like love. Christians have good truth and Christians do ministry, verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought 
into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We have ministry. They pick up this text, whoever the author is, I kind of convinced it's Paul, picks up this Old Testament text that sacrifices were done outside of the camp. And Jesus was not sacrificed inside the city of Jerusalem. He was taken outside the city and sacrificed out there. So then he says, let us therefore go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. You want good ministry? Go outside the camp, right? Jesus in his last message to his disciples, it's Matthew chapter 25, he says this, hey, the sheep, hey, you visited me in prison. You clothed me when I was naked. You fed me when I was hungry. You helped me when I was sick. And they're like, when did we do that for you? And Jesus will answer, in that you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. Ministry is always to the margins. Ministry is always outside the city. Ministry is always bearing the reproach. It's going where other people don't want to go. And what I found is the more that I go outside the camp, outside where it's comfortable, outside the city, go to where people are burdened and reproached, I find Jesus there. I find him in those people. I find him in conversations. Wow, this is where it's at. So there's this awesome chapter. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It talks about gifts that we have and the unity of the church. And then for some reason, it's like it switches gears, goes from unity, diversity, and then it's like, this is maturity. And it speaks about a body. And Paul, the author of it says this, our uncomely parts, the ugly parts, what do we do? We give them extra help, extra blessing, extra covering, right? So gals, let's just imagine for a second. I know it's purely hypothetical. Let's imagine you have a flaw. Like, totally hypothetical. I know it's not true. Do you try to remedy that flaw, right? So you've got nasty toes. One of them is the third toe is longer than all the other toes. Your feet look like pretzels. It's a yellow nail. Do you spend a little bit extra help on those toes? Yeah, why? Because they're uncomely. Well, 1 Corinthians 12 is saying mature believers, that's what they do. They run to the uncomely things. They run to the hard things. They run to that. I think it's always important for a church to evaluate because church can be this, and, and it's, this is my phrase, church can become what I call hair and face church. That all that matters is what happens up on this little piece of, you know, tiny little piece of real estate. That's all that matters, hair and face. But the body is anemic and dying and there's no ministry, and there's no outflow. And we don't go outside the city outside where it's comfortable. It's no, hey, I'm taking up my cross and I'm following Jesus. There's none of that. I'm so glad that this body gets it. 
I'm so glad that we know, hey, we're supposed to be out there helping and loving and blessing, speaking truth, no doubt, being hospitable, doing all those things outside of these four walls. Like we have a phenomenal facility. I mean, I'm just so blessed every time I come in here, but this is just a fraction of what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be out there ministering in the margins. That's how the world changes. So we go outside the city. That's what Christians do. And then our life is to be in a balance. Look at this, right? Through him, let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's a good one for you to underline. <laughs> I'm so kidding. <laughs> for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with droning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So there are elders that are here at Edgewater and we get together every, every Tuesday morning for two hours and we talk and we pray and we think and try to guide what Edgewater's doing here according to God's word and what Jesus wants for us, right? Pray for us. I would ask that. If you have a prayer list, please put elders on your prayer list. And we will, I will take all the prayer that we can get because this year has been one of those years that have been like, oh man, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more intensely to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Could be he's in prison, right? So Christians have a balanced life. So you see here, he says, you should worship offering praise the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. So we're supposed to worship and we're also, right after that, to do good and to share what we have. It's both of those things. Some churches are all about like social justice. Let's do good. Let's drill wells. Let's help people. But we don't really have to talk about Jesus. We don't have to really share the gospel. We're not really sure if Jesus is the only way. We don't want to interfere in their culture. So we just want to do good stuff. It's called social justice or social gospel. But they don't do the Jesus stuff. But there's other churches like conservative. Hey, we're just going to tuck away and we're going to do our own thing. And we've got really good doctrine. But you know what? We're not going out there because if we go out there, we might catch the sinnies. Right? So we're gonna build our own little, own little kingdom over here and we don't want, we're gonna get our guns and our gold and all of our own coffee shops and our own movie theaters. We don't want any, anything to do out there because you know what? We'll catch the cities out there. So then they kind of isolate themselves. I don't think either is the right. Like there's supposed to be this balance. Yeah, we praise, we come. We love God with all of our heart, mind and soul. But we also love our neighbor as ourselves. Right? You come and see, no doubt, but you go and tell. It's both of those things. And when a Christian is balanced, man, there's great fruit in that. There's incredible fruit in that. So as a church, I'm always like thinking and praying over, how do we make sure we're balancing? Yeah, we wanna do praise and corporate worship super, super good. But man, we sure have to have that outflow, loving neighbor as ourself. We sure have to be going out and telling this good news of what Jesus has done for us over and over again. And if you're gonna pray for something for elders, it's that we balance that right. 
because I think it's always like a pendulum. You're always like swinging. Are, are we too focused on gathering and not enough on going and telling? Are there, you get too much going and telling, not about the gathering and the equipping of the saints. It's that balance. Pray that we balance those two things right. And then he ends with this brilliant benediction. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. You want a summary of the entire book of Hebrews, that's it right there. Great authors summarize at the end in two verses. And this is soteriology to the max, which is simply your salvation. That salvation is not just the moment you believe in Jesus, it's the full thing. And here's what it is. Number one, we serve a God of peace. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad we don't serve a God of war? Because the ancient religions had gods of war that were really, really terrible, whatever that we you know, imaginary creations or demonic, whatever they were. They're bad dudes. We serve a God of peace who proved it so moved by his desire to have peace with us that he himself took on human flesh, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died to secure for us a brand new eternity where things are made right. We serve a God of peace. And we're sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. Sometimes I think these fluffy white little creatures, we think that's sheep. Have you ever been around sheep? They're nasty, right? John Stott, who was a pastor from Wales, so he grew up with a lot of sheep. He writes this, he says this, they're dirty, nasty creatures. You have to dip them in acid to get rid of the ticks and the worms. They stink, they're stupid, they have no defense. When we are called sheep, it is not a compliment. <laughs> I was like, that is so brilliant. <laughs> That's salvation, right? You didn't earn it. It's level at the cross. It's God's grace that brought you in. It's God's grace, right? So we are justified, why? By the blood of the covenant. Not by things that you do, not by how much you pray. Not, you, we, are, we are justified by the blood of the eternal covenant. That is chapter seven. That's chapter six, okay? Just, man, brilliant. You and I, were made the righteousness of God by the work of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Brilliant, justify. Then we're sanctified. Look at this. He wants to equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That's called sanctification. That as we begin to walk with and learn with and know Jesus, he equips us that whatever he is calling us to, he will also equip us to go do it. It's Philippians 2, 13 and 14, right? The two pedals on a bicycle, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
Why? Because it's God that works in you both to do and both the will and do of his good pleasure, right? It's God puts these things on my heart and then I respond and he puts more stuff on my heart and then I respond and like two pedals on a bicycle, you go forward and all of a sudden you find I'm doing God's will. Wow, this is awesome. It's not all me. It's not all God. It's this brilliant, beautiful partnership in sanctification. And then everything consummates in this through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is the deep end. Ephesians 1 verse 10. All things will be united into Jesus. Philippians 2, 13 and 14. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Read the book of Revelation the lamb who has been slain. Heaven goes silent. The focus of heaven is on him, right? That's where we're headed. You and I get a head start on this, but eventually everything, everything will bring glory to Jesus Christ for eternity. One of the most brilliant little passages, I think, in the Bible. Shakespeare said this, brevity is the soul of wit. Most pastors do not have that, this guy at the end of Hebrews had it. So he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my words of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You ever read a letter? Was it as long as Hebrews? <laughs> He's like, this is a short letter. I'm like, man, mine are really short then. <laughs> you should know that our brother Timothy, this is why I think it's Paul, has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Read all your letters and all the all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. Jesus, may we grow in grace. May we know that we come to an altar, that those who go to the tent of legalism cannot eat at. We know that your work is all that's required. And may we find ourselves responding to your grace in a way that grows us and equips us to do your will. So may we go from here today Is that just in my head? <laughs> May we go from here today with the full knowledge that we are sons and daughters of King Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And since you chose us, you will not change your mind on us. And may that confidence make us bulletproof, bulletproof against the lies of the enemy, who would like to discourage us by saying us we're lousy, no good, rotten sheep. May we just agree. And may that make us love you that much more because he who has been forgiven much loves much. So may we love you much, I pray. And may we go in grace. And we pray this in your name. Amen.